If you have your Bibles, why don't you turn to the book of Mark, Mark chapter 1. Mark 1, verse 21 to 39. Our text is shorter than this, but we're going to read this so we have the, the full context of our passage to help us understand it. So Mark 1, verse 21. Mark 1, verse 21. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons and the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would bless us by teaching us this morning, by speaking it to us through your word, um, that your spirit would keep me faithful. And Lord, that all of us, as we hear and consider your word, would be shaped by it, that we would be shepherded by it, the way that the sheep of a good shepherd are shepherded by his words. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if ever you are reading a story and the author tells you, this is the point, this is why I'm writing, you would do well to pay attention to that, wouldn't you? Likewise, if you had a long-lost friend come visit from a faraway land, such as Selkirk, <laughs> or Australia. Somebody comes from a far away, you haven't seen them for many, many years, and, and they show up in town, and you, you want to you, you wanna know why they're there. You want to just assume, what are you doing here? I mean, for instance, if they're there for their grandmother's funeral on Saturday, it would make sense that you wouldn't invite them to go paintballing on Saturday. The reason a person is there is a very important thing. This is something that we often miss. This is something that the church often misses in our day and throughout church history. 
Why is it that Jesus came? Why is he here? We've got all kinds of purpose statements that we would prefer Jesus to have, wouldn't we? Jesus came to do this for me. Jesus came to ruin those people. Jesus came to help those people. Jesus came to, Jesus came to. It stands to reason that if you are not the father of the Lord Jesus Christ, you do not get to give him his mission statement. In this passage, we learn Christ's priority. What he wants you to think about when you think about why did he come? Because this will also give the church its priorities and its purpose. Our first point is this. A private and toughing, toughing, touching, touching illustration of God's grace. Well, yeah, that was corrected there. I'm glad. Thank you, Laura. A private and touching illustration of God's grace. Let's look at that first part of our passage, which we're going to begin in verse 29. And immediately he left the synagogue and entered the house of Simon and Andrew with James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. And he came and took her by the hand and lifted her up, and the fever left her, and she began to serve them. Now, Jesus just preached a sermon which showed the synagogues that the synagogues of of Israel were actually starving for God's word, which would have surprised them. We got lots of God's word. This also showed that he was not merely a man talking about God's word or just talking about spiritual things or talking about theological things, that he was the one that Scripture was always and only talking about. God made a demon confront Jesus in this synagogue. Seems against the demon's will. He makes this demon confront Jesus in the synagogue, this church, so that Jesus could show that even the people who had the Bible, even people who are in a church, need to be rescued from the kingdom of Satan. Not that they were all possessed by Satan, but they may be on the same team as him, being enemies of God rather than children of God. He also showed that he was the one who had been prophesied for thousands of years who would save people and make them children of God rather than children of Satan. And in casting out this demon, he didn't prove that he could cast out demons, although he definitely proved that he could. But in casting the demon, he wasn't merely trying to prove he could cast out demons. He was proving he was the one to cast evil out of the people of God, and to cast evil, in fact, out of all creation. He didn't prove that Christians could do exorcisms, but that they could be rescued from the kingdom of Satan before Jesus destroys it. So he leaves the church, he leaves that that synagogue, and he goes to Simon's house. And Simon's mother-in-law is very sick. It says that she's got a fever. Now, Dr. Luke, who writes his, his own gospel or his own account of this, Luke tells us that this is not a low fever. And if, if the doctor tells us that, we need to realize this is not just a low fever. Dr. Luke tells us it is a high fever. The sickness, essentially, is something that could have taken this woman's life. So she was, she was facing death. wasn't dead, but death would have been a real possibility for her. And it's the first thing that they tell Jesus when he gets there. Immediately, they tell him about their mother-in-law, or Simon's mother-in-law. It's the first thing they tell Jesus when they get there. And Jesus responds by walking to her. 
he approaches her. He reaches out his hand toward this sick old woman and he takes hold of her burning hot wrinkly old hand and he raises her up to her feet and as she's raised up by the hand of Jesus the fever leaves her now Luke tells us that Jesus also rebuked the fever just the way that Jesus would later rebuke the wind and the waves and the storm. Remember, the disciples are on the boat with Jesus on the sea and, the, and they're facing death and the sea is raging against them. And Jesus stands up and he rebukes the wind and the waves and the wind and the waves obey. And of course they would, they would obey. The wind and the waves obey him because they had always obeyed him. He was the God who created them. And so just like that, Jesus commands the fever to leave Peter's mother-in-law, and it's gone. And you think that after that moment, it made them think of this moment. But we're not preaching from Luke. We're preaching from Mark. Mark actually doesn't tell a different story, but in God's providence, he wants one account to focus on something other than the fact that he rebuked the fever. He did rebuke the fever but God wanted at least one of the Gospels to say, I want you to focus on something else here. Through Mark's words, God draws our attention to Jesus and this dear old woman's hands. He wants us to think about Jesus' hand and this woman's hand. Through Mark, God is telling us this is a very personal thing. Jesus isn't mailing it in. When he saves billions of people, and he does save billions of people, He's not merely saving a group. He personally saves each one. And it is literally touching. Not all Jesus' healings involve touching people. Some of them he just merely speaks a word. So we know that Jesus didn't have to touch her. So the fact that he did, we know he was trying to show something, to demonstrate something that he didn't need to do. It's not part of a ritual or a spell. Well, you know, a man, when he's doing a healing, he must make sure he touches. No. He didn't have to do that. Other times he doesn't. But in this case, he does. Because his miracles are not just displays of power. As we will see over and over again, Jesus' miracles are not just displays of power. They are signs. They are living, miraculous parables. Now, a person can take out ads... And each of the ads a person might take out, think about billboards on the side of a highway or banners on websites. And each of the ads that you might take out might communicate one, something very specific about you. You know, this ad might talk about how good-looking you are, how wise you are, how wealthy you are, how fast, how strong, right? Each of them, you're going to communicate different things. And this sign, Jesus intends to communicate his personal touch on every single person that he saves. Jesus does not just provide salvation. Jesus saves. He doesn't just merely make salvation possible. He saves. He saves individuals one by one. He left heaven to save people not just to yell that he's saving people, not just to snap his fingers and save people, 
but he joined the human race. God eternal joined the human race and he got into the pigsty that we made with us to save individual sinners. The second point is this, a private and touching response to God's grace. And here we're just going to focus on that little phrase right at the end of that, phrase, that, that, that section that we read. The fever left her and she began to serve them. Simon's old mother-in-law immediately begins to serve Jesus and his disciples. There's no reason that Jesus told her to do this. There's no reason to believe that Jesus told her to do this. But even if he did, God doesn't draw our attention to that. But rather that this was almost an automatic response to the touch of Christ. It's like a new natural response. And this serves, again, as a living parable. All of Jesus serve as living parables. Not just proving that he can heal people, but demonstrating something greater than the miracle does. If you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 2, and we can see how actually this is a beautiful illustration of the beautiful theology that we see in Ephesians chapter 2. And I think by the time we get to verse 10, you'll know what I'm saying. Ephesians 2 verse 1. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You see how this is a beautiful uh, teaching passage, and that was a beautiful illustration passage? That woman is facing death, and Christ saves her from that death. He raises her up. Same idea. He raises her up. And her now new natural response is to serve him and the others in the house. I think it's helpful for us to realize she didn't serve him first. Now I gotta, I gotta make sure that this man heals me because I gotta show him, I gotta earn this a little bit. I'm gonna serve him and serve him and serve him, and then he's gonna save me. What came first? The saving and then the serving. The salvation from the fever comes first. And then she serves him not, not to pay him back as if she could. Like Jesus was somehow giving her a loan rather than a gift. 
Jesus doesn't give loans. He gives gifts. Serving, brothers and sisters, serving is how we were created to glorify and enjoy God. See, God needs nothing. God didn't make us like little minions to do his work for him because he was tired. If you look at a lot of the the mythological accounts of creation, the different pantheons of gods, that's often what creation is is, uh, compared to. Or even said specifically, God was kind of tired and he needed people to do his work. So he created a bunch of minions. But the God of the Bible, the God of the actual, of actual reality needs nothing. He is all powerful. He doesn't get tired. He needs no things. And we see in the Bible, God is enjoying his creation and serving work. God is creating. You know, Genesis 1, we've got day 1, day 2, day 3, day 4, day 5, day 6. He's creating things by his word. He uses his hands as well to create Adam and Eve. He's enjoying it. There's no hint that God is frustrated by this, getting kind of tired. This is annoying. I do not like to work. And so when God creates man and woman in his image, he creates us to enjoy some of his attributes by sharing in some of them. In a creaturely way, of course. By imitating him, reflecting his glory. He put Adam and Eve in the garden to work it. To be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And so when a person is saved, they're remade in God's image. Enjoying God. Imitating God. Which includes serving him and serving others. Not to earn his grace. Not to work off a debt but to enjoy his grace by doing things that we were created to do. Expending energy, yes, but energy that is supplied by God to imitate him. Horses run and falcons fly. In both cases, it takes a lot of energy. A horse running after a while will be tired. A falcon flying for a while will be tired but it is their natural desire and joy to do so. Nobody has to force them to do these things. It's what they want to do. It's what they enjoy doing, even though it takes energy and effort. And when a person is saved by Jesus, this natural desire that was in us before the fall into sin is now actually restored and rebuilt. Now that desire is corrupted. And it keeps getting recorrupted when we miss the relationship between works, our works, and faith. The Bible is abundantly clear. We are saved by grace. It's a gift, not alone. And that gift is received by faith. You get saved to become one of God's children. You, take, you, you receive what Christ did on the cross. You receive that by trusting him. You don't do it by work. It's not faith plus works. But when you have received that salvation, that salvation is now you are remade, a person who has a new natural inclination, which is to serve God and serve others. Serving his people, your adopted family, serving your own family, serving your neighbors in your community and your vocation and your work, and serving even your enemies. 
This is now the new natural work of the Spirit in a believer. He restores us to life, to life as it was meant to be, where we work and enjoy it for God's glory. Our third point is this, a public illustration of God's grace. And for that, we're going to look at verses 32 to 34. We're continuing this, right? So Jesus is in Simon's house. He heals his mother-in-law. His mother-in-law stands up and is starting to serve. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. He would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him thus far. All right, so the end of the Sabbath means people can come to him for help. So it's, it's still Saturday, still the, the, the day of rest and worship. And you notice that only at sundown did the whole city gather at Simon's door. Now you might ask the question, why is it that they didn't follow him right out of the synagogue? The whole, the whole city believed that he, that he was this miracle worker, right? Immediately afterward, they saw him cast out the demon. They heard him preach with authority. They were all convinced that this guy was somebody they should go to to get healing from. And yet none of them did. They waited till sundown. Now, the reason that they had done this is because the Pharisees, the religious leaders, had added extra rules, and they forbade anybody from walking a significant distance or even getting help. You couldn't even get medical help on a, sun, on a Saturday. You couldn't. It was forbidden. Obviously, these were rules that God had not made, but that they had made instead. And so this is going to set up a pretty interesting battle between Jesus and the Pharisees in just a couple of weeks. You'll just have to wait for that. So they brought the sick or people oppressed by demons. They brought sick or people who were, who were oppressed by demons. This is a very important thing for us, a very important detail. This is, they were not fools. We have to avoid what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery, that we assume that everybody who lived in ancient times were fools and we're just so much smarter and better than them. They did not assume that every single sickness was demon possession. They didn't assume that. Mark's very, very clear that they didn't think that. In fact, there is almost no demon possession in the entire Old Testament. Lots of sickness, but almost no. There's actually less than a handful of examples of that happening. So sickness should not be attributed to demon possession. So he healed many who were sick, not like the false teachers of today, not like the false teachers of today. It wasn't, I'll, I'll give it a go. No. Everybody he tried to heal was healed. He wasn't trying to do this. Notice it says various diseases. He's not picking the ones that would be easiest to fake. You know, your back is a, a five-level pain, and oh, it feels like a four-and-a-half-level pain now. No. He healed all kinds of diseases and many people who were sick. These were real miracles. A real miracle is not something that could be faked. That's kind of the point of a miracle. It doesn't actually require faith. It just is. Nobody even denies it. Which is another difference between the miracles claimed today and the miracles that Jesus performed. This is a sign as we've seen. And it really has two signs in it. This healing work of Jesus. First, that it, it proves that Jesus is the providential healer of God's people. 
And secondly, that he is the healer of Isaiah 53. So let's look, first of all, that this is a sign that Jesus is and always was the healer of God's people. It is so important for us to not miss the doctrine of God's providence. God's providence. We have cities called providence. We say the word providence. God intentionally caring for all creation and especially his people in ways that we would call natural but are actually God intentionally personally, intricately caring for his people. For thousands of years, God had a church before Jesus came, the Old Testament church, the people of Israel, and he was, as Kevin read for us, he was their healer. They knew he was their healer. He says, he's the one who heals all our diseases. Whenever anybody got healed of a disease, they would say, God did that. Whether that was somebody just having a fever and naturally getting over it, or stubbing their toe and having an infection and it clearing up with some ointment or just because of the natural uh, immunity that your body has to these things and processes to fight these things. Every single time anybody had health, God did that. Anytime somebody didn't get sick, they'd say, God did that. No miracles needed. It was God doing these things. Dear brothers and sisters, just because it looks ordinary, it doesn't mean it's anything less special. Providence is God's ordinary way, his favorite way of caring for his people. He prefers to care for your needs and my needs by providence rather than through miraculous healing. Now, we might think I would prefer that, He doesn't. This is his favorite way of developing a relationship of depending on him and praying to him and then him wisely and lovingly providing for their needs, saying yes to these things and no to other things. God is a good father who provides and cares for his children when they ask. And very, 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 very often when they don't ask. How many heartbeats did you have yesterday? How many of those did you ask for? Who gave them to you? The Lord, your healer. Not any less special because it wasn't some poof miracle. Now, miracles were proved, were were important to prove someone was a prophet. Had to happen. Miracles were necessary to prove that you were a Bible writer. Okay? Miracles were also necessary to prove that you were the Messiah. But they are not the way to prove you're a Christian. And they're not the most precious way that God provides food and health. Providence is that. We often call childbirth a miracle. And we understand why that's the case. But it's not a miracle. It's better than a miracle. It is the hand of God. No less than a miracle. It is the hand of God caring for his people, and even for people who are not his people. And so this sign that Jesus performed, these miracles, these miraculous healings, were to prove that Jesus was always the one who had provided healing and the needs of God's people. In ordinary ways, it was always God. 
And it was always Jesus. Colossians 1.15, listen to this. Talking about Jesus. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, talking about Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he's before all things. And in him, and in him all things hold together. Why is it that people recover from the flu? Because Christ has designed that and he makes sure that happens when it does happen. He is the one who holds all things together. He holds all things together. Your heart and your liver, springtime and harvest, sunrise and sunset. And God publicly identified Christ, not simply as the one who would miraculously heal, although he could, but he was proving something better, something more important, that Christ is the source of all health and always has been, particularly the natural health and provision that God gives. But it's another sign, I said, it's a sign of two things, that Christ is the natural provider and healer of God's people, as he always was, but he's also the healer of Isaiah 53. If you look at this passage in the book of Matthew, Matthew tells us that this fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy in Isaiah 53, that he took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now, Jesus didn't become sick when he healed Simon's mother-in-law or these crowds. So then what does Matthew mean when he says that this fulfilled what Isaiah said, that he bore our illnesses and our diseases? Well, Isaiah 53, and we studied this a couple of months ago, he tells, Isaiah 53 tells us that his, by his wounds, by his stripes, which means lashes from a whip, by his stripes, by his wounds, we would be healed. By his chastisement, that means his punishment. The punishment that God punished him with. So here he's not speaking of cancer. He's not talking about tuberculosis. He's not talking about paralysis. He's speaking of our punishment that we deserve for our sin, which we'd otherwise receive in hell. Let me show you. Isaiah 53, verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, not for our cancer. He was crushed for our iniquities, not for our tuberculosis. Upon him was the chastisement, punishment, that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Matthew tells us when Jesus is healing these multitudes, he's not proving that he heals people. Of course, he's proving he can, but that's not the point. He's proving he would heal us of our enmity with God. He is healing us of that punishment that we would receive for our sin by one day taking that punishment for us, which he did on the cross. It's not a sign that Jesus will keep every Christian from getting sick or that if they do get sick, he will heal them miraculously. It's not a, it's not a, a promise, not even, not even suggested here. No, this was the public sign that this is the man, that they, Israel should look to this man. This is the man who will be punished for their sin. Watch it, it will happen. And it did happen three-ish years later. He'd be punished instead of us. And Jesus knew this as he healed person by person of that crowd 
that their sicknesses were only on earth because sin entered the world. And he knew that the sign is always less than the reality. A sign of something is always less than the reality of that thing. So whatever these sicknesses were a sign of, he knew every time he healed somebody of a disease, he was reminded of the curse of the wrath of God that he would one day bear for that person. But also the joy on that person's face after being healed, that would have inspired him to face the cross anyway. Hebrews tells us that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. Of course, his own joy, but also the joy of his beloved church, his bride, the one whom he was punished instead of. We also see, again, Mark's going to keep throwing these things in there, we, again with the demons. There's the demons around. Why is there so many demons around here? Well, this is because, uh, because Jesus wants to be very clear that his power is not satanic power. Now, you have to understand why this is a very important thing. By the time Jesus' ministry was, was finished, no one in Israel denied he was a miracle worker. You won't find any evidence that, he was, that anybody denied this. His fiercest enemies did not deny he was a miracle worker. The Pharisees, Sadducees, did not deny he had miraculous power. No one dared deny it. Why would they do it? Everybody knew this man was a miracle worker. It was uncontested. Even if you look at like the secular historians of that day, they'll tell you this man was a miracle worker. Everybody knew this. So they really had only one out. Well, it wasn't God. It must have been Satan's power. And so you see, as we looked at last week, it seems like God is just like posting demons at all of these things so that he can like rebuke them and cast them out and shut them up to demonstrate over and over again so that Israel would have no excuse, not even the one that he was on Satan's team, which was a foolish excuse anyways. But he removes that from them. He proved that he was the God who made the heavens and earth, the God of the Old Testament, the God who cares for us, and also that he was the Messiah that would suffer for his people. Now, if you were to be writing the Bible, it would be important that we would expect in demand of you to have this kind of miraculous power. Or if you claim to be the Messiah... It would be right for us to demand that you uh, and expect you to have this kind of miraculous power. But if you are not Jesus or a Bible writer, no one can demand or expect that you'll be able to do miracles. It's unfair, it's unbiblical. But no one can deny that if you have faith in Christ, that you possess the promises that those miracles were merely signs of, which means that if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation for you. These signs prove that you have a greater healing, not that your cancer will be healed, not that your back will be healed, but that you have no condemnation because Christ bore the wrath of God for your sins. And also of a promised future in a new heavens, a new earth, where there will be no more sin, where Satan and all of his people will be cast out and where you should be cast out too. But before Christ came to cast out all of the evil works off the earth, he saved you. 
and took your punishment so that you could be there in the new heavens and earth with a glorified body that will not experience any sickness or pain because he suffered the wrath of God instead of you. 1 Peter 5, verse 10. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our fourth point is this, a private dependence on God's grace. So Jesus has now healed this multitude after healing Simon's mother-in-law, and it's nighttime. They all go to sleep. Mark 1, verse 20, or 35. And rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said, everyone's looking for you. Now, this was probably the best day of the disciples' lives so far, right? They hadn't seen this, like, multitudes of people getting healed, and now they're doing this. And you can imagine what's going through their head as they're falling asleep and looking forward to the next day. Let's just keep going with this work of healing and miracles, healing and miracles. And they wake up, and Jesus is gone. Imagine what went through their minds. Was I dreaming? Was this his imagination? So they go looking for Jesus. They go looking for the man in history with the greatest displays of power the strongest power. And what do they find? A man humbly depending on God the Father in prayer. He was a real man with real weaknesses, no sin but actual weaknesses. He was a real human. And he shows us what it truly means to be the most human. It's not to be a superhuman who doesn't need God but to be a human who gladly depends on God, who recognizes that all good things come from God and so prays for them. Is it possible that you receive good things without praying? It certainly is. In fact, you receive a lot of good things without praying. But to live a life as a Christian without prayer is kind of like being in someone's house and taking things from their pantry without asking them without thanking them. This is God's world and we are guests in it. We are his children if we are in Christ. Which means that even though there's so many gifts we have that we don't ask for, we even notice. How many times have children not recognized all the good things their, kid, their parents have done for them? But we demonstrate that we love this relationship with him by asking and thanking. A dependence on God and this is what Jesus demonstrated, even though he was the man who had the most power. And yet, he depended the most on God. And the disciples were surprised and almost scold Jesus, thinking, what are you, what are you doing? Uh, we have work to do here. Why, why are you here? We should be doing something else. And I think this shows a couple of things. Prayer is a natural outworking of our new nature. Just like Simon's mother-in-law, the, uh, the new natural was for her to serve. The new natural for us, if we are in Christ, is that we pray. We pray for the things that we used to not pray for. And we thank God for the things that we used to not thank Him for. Because we now recognize the proper relationship we have with God. No longer His enemies just using His stuff, but His children, gladly receiving them. 
The second thing it shows to us is that the work of ministry is not a natural work. Jesus says that one of the reasons he's praying is because he knows he's got work to do. The work of salvation. When we preach, when we share the gospel, when we serve without prayer, we tend to to look at ourselves and think that we can trust our own abilities. That we think it's just us being able to convince somebody of something. We'll convert our neighbors by how kind we are, how wise we are, how good we are at arguing or stumping them. Or maybe how attractive our lives are so that other people will want the same kind of things that we have. But a real ministry that actually understands the gospel, that every single time somebody is saved, it is a person who hates God converted to a person who loves God. That would have to be a miracle. And so we give ourselves to prayer and it's not a waste of time. Our last point is this. Christ left heaven that people would be saved by the preaching of the gospel. Let's read our last couple of verses here. Matthew, or Mark 1, 38. And he said to them, let us go out to the next towns. Go on to the next towns that I may preach there also. And here's the punchline. For that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. The disciples loved the healing ministry. They loved it. They loved the crowds. Let's get back to this important work of healing, Jesus. Let's stay here in Capernaum. We've got a crowd here. We've got to work the crowd. More healing, more healing, more healing. But Jesus disagrees. No, we need to move on to the next town. I'm not here to heal. I'm here to preach. Did you notice that repetition? Remember in our hermeneutics classes, we learned that one of the ways you find the focus of the author is repetition. And he repeats, preach, a couple of times here, doesn't he? No doubt the disciples enjoyed the preaching of Jesus, but that wasn't in their mind the main piece. Healing and miracles seemed to be. But Jesus said the preaching of the gospel is why I came out, came out of heaven. Why he left his father's throne. Why he humbled himself by becoming a man, taking on human flesh and a human soul. This is why he left. It's not so he could do miraculous healing. That's not the point. It's not why he left. He left so that the gospel would be preached. Now, he had to fulfill the gospel, first of all. He had to be the gospel in a way that you and I are not to be the gospel. We can't. He is the gospel. He is the one. His life of obedience, if you have faith in him, his life of obedience counts as your obedience and your record before God. And his curse on the cross, the damnation he received on the cross, was your damnation if your faith is in him. He came to be that gospel message. He came to be the good news so that it could be preached and it could save people. He left heaven to accomplish the gospel so that it could be preached and saved people. Now the church's mission is is Christ's mission. We preach the gospel for salvation. And the gospel is that we are spared from the wrath of God. Not spared from a bad life, but spared from the wrath of God. Not spared from sickness, but to know that if you have sickness, God is with you in that as your father. 
And that if you have sickness, it is not because God hates you, but because God is wise and he knows that we ultimately for your eternal good. We preach that gospel. And Jesus wants us to know that when he corrects the disciples there. How do we preach? Yeah, we preach from pulpits. But also in your living room. Or in your kid's bedroom. Or in the car on the way to school. Or in the lunchroom with your coworkers. Or on your front lawn with your neighbors. Preaching simply means announcing good news. Not instructions. Not law but news. So when a mom tells the good news of Jesus to her child sitting on her knee, that is preaching. And that is why Jesus came. To produce that message so that mom could share that gospel with her kid. The kid believe and be saved. And saved eternally. Faith comes from hearing the word of Christ. This is why he came. This is why he gave up his life. That the gospel would be preached and it would save all who would hear it and believe. He tried and failed to heal no one. He tried and failed to save no one. The gospel will fail to save no one for whom Christ died. They will all be saved by hearing and believing the gospel. Dear unbelieving guests, if you have not repented of being an enemy of God and trusted in Jesus alone to make you a son or daughter of God, whatever sickness you can think about or read about on the news is just a shadow of really your problem before God. Dear Christian, if your faith is in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are healed. Not simply you will be healed, you are healed. By his wounds you were healed. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, even if you feel like there is. There is not. Christ performing those miracles in front of vast amounts of witnesses proved he was the one who would take your punishment on the cross, just like Isaiah prophesied in Isaiah 53. There is no condemnation, and there will be no condemnation it also means that we can now call God our Father when we pray to Him. If you're not a Christian, you can't call God your Father. He's not. He's your enemy. He might be a kind enemy who's taking care of you while you're His enemy, but He's not your Father. So we have the privilege of praying just in the Lord, just like in the Lord's Prayer, calling God our Father. He is our provider. He's the one who provides all the health we've ever received, all the food we've ever received all the safety and peace and all the rich blessings that we've ever received. He is the one from whom all blessings flow, miraculous or unmiraculous. And we have that because Christ suffered and died in our place. By his wounds, we are healed. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that rather than simply just giving us the Savior that we thought we needed or the one we wanted, that you gave us exactly the Savior we needed. We thank you that you proved beyond a reasonable doubt, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that Jesus is the one that the scriptures had prophesied for thousands of years before. So that we would not have to wonder if he really was 
who he claimed to be. And Lord, knowing that he is the one he claimed to be, let us put our faith in him. Lord, for those who are right now under your wrath because they remain enemies of yours and have not turned to Christ in faith, do not let them get away from thinking about that. Stir in their hearts a desire to no longer be your enemy, but to be your children. Give them faith in Christ and save them. Father, for those of us who are your children by faith, I pray that you would work in us, that we would live as children, that we would walk as Christ did, that we would walk serving people, not because it saves us, but because we are saved. And Lord, for those of us who are suffering, whether it's sickness or other painful experience, Lord, would you assure us that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That this is not an indication we are under your wrath because Christ was under your wrath instead of us. And Lord, draw our attention to the new heavens and earth that will be established when Christ returns. Where sin in all of its stains and curses will be removed. And where we would have no right to be if it were not for Christ in our place. We pray that you would do these things in us in Jesus' name. Amen.